This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Tales from the Halifax School for the Blind, an AMI audio original podcast where we explore what everyday life was like inside this legendary institution. Over the span of 112 years, the Halifax School for the Blind was home to thousands of blind and partially sighted children from Atlantic Canada and beyond. Join me, Terry Kelly, and my fellow former students as we take a trip down memory lane, reflecting on formative experiences and cherished memories from our beloved alma mater. As the first season of our podcast comes to a close, it's time for storytellers Gene Hills and Fred and Gloria Haynes to graduate. We conclude their journeys with stories of life after school, beloved teachers, and how they reunited to pay tribute to the school they held so dear. Back in the early 60s, Fred and Gloria were freshly out of school and eager to enjoy their newfound freedom. When Gloria and I left the school, of course, it was a short time after we left that we were married and we were living uh, down in the South End on Green Street. And we used to have a joke that most of the students that we knew at the school would always want to come back in the summertime to Halifax. And they were coming in the front door and going out the back door continuously. <laughs> but we didn't mind. We loved having company. All we were interested in was just being together and being and not having to sneak around at the school. You know, Fred gave me my ring, um, my engagement ring in 1963, November of 63. And we got married in April of 64. We had two children, Peter and Cindy. And our first child was born in 65. And then our daughter was born in 67. He was uh, a very successful piano tuner, and we do have our own home. And I have never had to work because Fred was able to care for both of us, make enough money that I did not have to work, which I was happy about. I know a lot of women wouldn't like that, but I always wanted to be at home mom. So I was very fortunate that I could do that. And losing my vision uh, at an early age, I mean, early in our marriage, was very difficult. And so I was able to deal with that and with Fred's help, of course. And I was very depressed at first. And Fred just said, <laughs> he explained that, you know, Gloria, if you are going to be depressed all the time, you're going to lose your family and friends because that's a very difficult thing to deal with. And it really, it didn't sound like very good advice at the time, but or a very nice thing to say at the time. But boy, did it help me. I get over that little bit of depression I had. and. We've had a good life together. Fred credits strong communication skills for the incredible longevity of their relationship. I think our uh, relationship has, you know, the same as anyone else. We've had our ups and downs, and but we've always been able to uh, talk things out. And, and after maybe a little argument about something, we see how foolish it is. And we would hug and kiss and make up and say, Let's let's stop this and foolishness, you know, because it, most arguments are foolish. We've certainly had our up and ups and downs, and we certainly did. We're both very healthy, so I haven't had 
issues in that line, but we went through a lot of eye conditions. I mean, Fred had many, many, many uh, uh, cornea transplants, and I had many surgeries with uh, with my glaucoma. And actually, I had my my I have two my eyes were removed at, at different times for various reasons. But we got through it all, and and we were always there for each other. And I love him even more today than I did. 56 to 57 years ago almost, if that's possible. Oh, over 57 years, yes. While Fred and Gloria remained in Halifax, Jeannie McAllister found that the road to love and happiness is long, foggy, and not without a couple of fender benders. I never met anybody in Halifax. I met one summer when I was home, a boy. We were allowed to go out a couple of times because he had a car. He was about four years older than me. And he uh, had my parents' permission. And uh, I was allowed to go out with him a couple of times. Um, I'm not sure they really liked it. Anyway, I did have a car accident when I was 17 the second last year I was there in May, it was May two four weekend. I don't think it interfered with anybody else having parents' permission to see uh, somebody outside the school because an accident is an accident. But um, I eventually went on to marry him. During my last year there, he worked in the Fredericton area, and I saw him at Christmas. I finished school in June, and I married him in July. Um, that was part of the whole thing. Well, what am I going to do when I'm done school? I I just didn't know. You know, somebody wanted to marry me, so I guess I better do it. I, I don't think it was a wise choice, but it was the choice I made. You hear people saying, I'd like to be young again. But my God, I wouldn't want those years back because we were normal. I was a normal teenage girl and could not plan a future because there seemed to be nowhere or no way to go. But then again, too, you have to remember in the 60s, early 60s, we girls we're still brought up to be wives and mothers. That was the era. It wasn't until the second half of the 60s decade that we all realized that hold the bus here. We need to work. We need to not only be wives and mothers, but we also needed to be working mothers. And that was a huge decade change for not only myself, but all of us young girls, all women in the 60s, because in 1966, we got the pill. We, for the very first time in, in history, uh, were able to govern our own bodies and our own lives. And that was, that was revolutionary. Now, I finished school there in 1965. And I was still under the impression that, well, I better find somebody that'll marry me because that's what I've been groomed for, to be a wife and mother. 
And uh, I certainly found out that uh, that wasn't necessarily going to be my life. Uh, but it was a scary time for, I think, all young people, not just us at the school. There was no roadmap for a young lady who was blind in the early 1960s. While the boys were stared towards a narrow set of careers, the girls weren't expected to enter the workforce or lead independent lives. But Jeannie was no pushover and was determined to carve out her own path. Well, I did marry when I was 18, and uh, within three years, I've had two kids, two little girls. About five years after I married, uh, that marriage fell apart. So, well, here I am. (laughs) I'm a blind person. I have two children. And I do not have enough education to support these kids. So I said, well, I better do something. And I did. I got myself some housing. I got myself some assistance financially. And I went back to school. I lived in Oshawa at the time, so I went back to O'Neill Collegiate, and I got my grade 13 because I needed it at the time. First time in a sighted school since age six, but okay, we did her. At the end of that year, I applied uh, for the school, uh, physiotherapy school in London, and by golly, I got in. I know uh, the CNIB thought my goals were totally unrealistic, but I said, I really, really need to try. I had a good opportunity for my children to provide them with some care while I was away. And it was really good care or I wouldn't have went. So off I went. I went to London and I got my physiotherapy uh, diploma. The spring of 1977, I got a job in Richmond Hill at the hospital. And within a couple of months, I managed to find an apartment and get it furnished and get my kids back with me. And it was kind of tough. Uh, they were four and seven when I left. They were eight and 11 when I got back. We learned to live together again and learned about each other and got acquainted with each other again. And I worked there for four years. And then about 1979, early 80, I met Dawn. Well, we both were musicians at that point, him much more so than myself. And uh, I was a singer, of course, in those days, did some guest uh, vocal appearances for folks. And um, we married in December of 1980. And this coming Sunday will be our 40th wedding anniversary. And yes, we're still crazy. We soon moved to Toronto, where I started my own clinic in 1982. I worked at that clinic until 96. I sold it and moved to Aurelia. Had to get out of the city. Couldn't stand it anymore. (laughs) And uh, started another little clinic. And I retired from there in uh, 2014. And now I am 100% retired. Now known as Mrs. Hills, retirement hasn't slowed Jean down one bit. And just like it was back at the old Halifax School for the Blind, she's still got to be involved in everything. I have a very good life. My husband and I have grown as musicians very much since the 90s, except for the 
poor year we've had this year because of COVID, we have been uh, very busy uh, entertainers. And we play with our friends. You know, we jam and play almost every day, you know. Yeah, still blind. <laughs> but it, it hasn't really stopped much. hasn't changed me very much. We've had a great 40 years. We've done so many things together, hiking, mountain climbing. For 11 years, we owned a yacht. And yes, I could drive it. I could do everything but park it. Uh, we fished. We've skied, snowshoed. Gosh, we just, we do anything we want. It was nearly impossible to attend the Halifax School for the Blind and not develop a profound love of music. Once Jean had her druthers, she was writing music and performing with her husband, Don. In the late 90s, we had, uh, I had written some songs and uh, we decided to do a little album. We called it hors d'oeuvres because we thought we maybe do a second one and we'd call that the entree, <laughs> but we never did. Uh, yeah, I wrote a bunch of songs and we thought, well, geez, let's put them all together on an album. You can purchase their album hors d'oeuvres on the Apple iTunes store and you can find out more about Don and Gene Hills by looking up Two Hearts Content online or on Facebook. Our other duo... Fred and Gloria Haynes often think back on their favorite teachers at the school and the odd, embarrassing moment. I really thought a lot of Mr. Leg. He was a very kind person, an excellent principal, teacher, and he would help us with our any homework problems we were having. He was always willing to help us any time of the day. And one thing about him, he was a very good storyteller. Uh, as we got older in the chemistry class, we would plan who would ask Mr. Leg a question to get him to tell us a story rather than do our chemistry work. And also another teacher I remember, my most embarrassing moment in school was maybe grade 10 in economics and I was in another world and all of a sudden Mr. Brooks said, Gloria, what is the 11th commandment? And I said, I don't know. I don't know my commandments in order. It didn't even hit me that he said 11. And so I said, well, maybe it's thou shalt not steal. Anyway, then he dropped it. And we had a school reunion in 1989. And Mr. Brooks was there and was taking my picture. And I said, Mr. Brooks, do you remember that, that incident in school? And, and he had remembered it. He said, well, do you know what the 11th commandment is? And I said, no such thing as the 11th commandment. And he said, it's don't get caught. And I had been caught daydreaming. Through his involvement with the Boys Club, Fred got to know Mr. Hawes quite well. He was also one of the few students to form a friendship with the legendary Dr. Hussey. The tuning department was on the top floor. If he walked out of the tuning department and turned left, the very first office on the right was Dr. Hussey's. And I remember one day I, I was coming out of the tuning department and Dr. Hussey was standing outside of his office and he said, who's, who's that? And I said, told him my name. And he said, how much vision do you have? And I, I told him and he said, well, would you come here? I want to see if you could do something for me. So I went into his office and what he wanted me to do was to take this, this little tool was like a, a disc 
with teeth in it, and he wanted me to lay a map on top of braille paper and trace the edge of the uh, whatever it was, a province of Nova Scotia or whatever. Around the edge, he wanted me to trace it so it would puncture holes in the braille paper. Then he could he could feel the uh, the shoreline, you know, uh, of the province. I did that for him a few times, and then one day he asked, "Do you do any boating?" And I said, "Well, I used to when I was home." And he said, "So you don't mind going out on the water?" And I said, "Oh no." He said, "Well, maybe you'll come down to my place on on a weekend and take me out. I love to row." So I did, and I remember the first time that I went down to take him out rowing, there were so many boats moored in in the water near where his rowboat was that it it probably took us 20 minutes to get out beyond the ropes. We kept running into ropes and everything, but finally we did get out into the open water. And and, uh, I used to go up to his house after and have a little lunch with him before I would, there was a, he lived on the Purcell's Cove side of the uh, of the arm, so I, there was a little boat for ten cents that would take you back over to Halifax from the Dingo. I, I think I only went down maybe a couple of times rowing with him because he had other people that would do that as well. Among many fabulous educators, Jean thanks one particular teacher for instilling in her a lifelong thirst for knowledge. We had some of the best teachers. We had uh, Mr. Nickerson, who taught English and math, although he wasn't terribly good with math, and it wasn't my best suit. But we had Mr. Brooks, Francis P. Brooks, I believe his name was. He was an absolutely wonderful teacher. I think the first time I had him, I was in grade seven, so I would have been 12, And I think he taught various classes right up until I left uh, in 1965. I think it was Mr. Brooks that gave myself and many others the kind of yin to learn. You know, he he made teaching just so interesting for us. I just loved him. Just loved him. In the early years, of course, Miss Thorpe, she was great with arithmetic, and Braille teacher uh, Pearl Campbell was just fantastic. But Mr. Brooks, Mr. Nickerson, to me, they just stand out as absolutely fantastic teachers. Mr. Legg was also a good teacher, taught geometry. His office was an open door, and I really, I really thought of Mr. Legg as more of a father figure than anything. He was just, to me, just wonderful. As exciting as it was to graduate and take our first steps into adulthood, leaving the school behind, along with all our friends, rivals, crushes, and mentors, was bittersweet. Most of us were comforted by the idea of returning for a visit later in life, walking those old halls one more time with our future spouses and children sharing all the memories sure to be conjured up. For Jeannie, that wasn't meant to be, though she does vividly remember the day she learned a return to the school would not be possible. Oh, yeah, so that was a sad day. I was I was working in Toronto. I, was, um, I had opened my first clinic. In my route to get there, I had to uh, wait for a bus at the uh, Donland Station on uh, Danforth. 
So I was standing there one morning with my white cane and this gentleman uh, approached me and he said, I see you're blind. <laughs> Is it Jeff? <laughs> yeah. He said, well, you know, um, you know, I'm just here from Halifax. And I said, oh, I said, I went to school there. He said, yeah, I thought maybe you might have. He spoke like, uh, you know, a blue collar worker type. He said, yeah. He said, you know, he said, the school for the blind down there. Yeah. He said, yeah. He said, I tore it down last week. He's crane operator. Eh? Well, I stood there and I cried. I think I cried most of the day, you know, off and on. But I just absolutely stood there and cried. This was back in 1983 or four. I don't think he meant to to make me cry, but I certainly did. I thought I always wanted to go back and and bring my husband to to see the school and and to run around and visit all the little spots. And of course, it was torn down. He figured it would be a parking lot. And so the site of Canada's first residential school for the blind became a parking lot for the Victoria General Hospital. The school began with four students way back in 1871, and by 1911, the student population had grown to 135. Many attribute the long-standing success of the school to its first superintendent, Sir Charles Frederick Fraser. At 13 years old, Young Charles Frederick left his home in Windsor, Nova Scotia, to attend the Perkins Institute for the Blind in Boston, under the tutelage of Dr. Samuel Howe. One decade later, in 1873, Fraser began his 50-year tenure at the Halifax Asylum for the Blind, which he would soon rename the Halifax School for the Blind. The incredible environment created by Sir Frederick Fraser and the contributions from many passionate educators and staff who were blind and partially sighted would provide generations of children with a world-class education. Over a century later, if you were to visit that parking lot, there was nothing to remember the old school by, nothing to mark the millions of lessons learned and thousands of lives forever changed. Though the building was gone, the spirit of the school would live on. In 2012, almost 30 years after the school was demolished, a group of students returned to the site to unveil a monument to the Halifax School for the Blind. Among those in attendance was each and every one of our storytellers from this season. These former students and many others pooled their own resources to create something of lasting memory. After attending the ceremony, Robert Mercer was moved to write a heartfelt essay. He described what he saw on the face of the monument, embedded deep within the braille dots and beautifully embossed image of the school building. It was a true community of learning and family living, where everyone was, at the same time, a student, a teacher, an older sister or brother, a guardian or a younger sibling to everyone else. The reunion was the perfect opportunity for Fred and Gloria to share a bit of the old school spirit with their daughter, Cindy. That evening, when we had the unveiling, my daughter went with us. She was just amazed to the point of being teary, she said. It was just like we saw each other yesterday. We were so close, you know, from the years at the school. And uh, she said everyone was just visiting each other and talking. And, and she said it was just amazed after. So that was that was the wonderful thing that happened. 
Jean and her husband Don came down from Marilia, Ontario for the ceremony. Thankfully, with their guitars safely intact and in hand. I had heard from uh, Gloria uh, and Fred uh, that they were going to do a memorial uh, and, a, and a statue and unveiling and the whole thing. And I thought, oh dear, what can I do? So I said, well, what about money? Well, we can always use some money because, of course, they were, you know, this wasn't cheap. So uh, I sent some money and I thought, well, I opened my big mouth and said, of course, well, I'm going to write a song for you. Oh, that would be nice. It's one of the hardest things I ever wrote. (laughs) So anyways, I got this song all written and I submitted it and uh, it was acceptable. So when uh, we were down there, uh, my husband and I brought our guitars and uh, we we just performed it, you know. He's a better guitar player than me. So, of course, I always feel better when I have him backing me up. But it was a hard one to write, I'll tell you, because I tried to include... Uh, a, f- a good flavor, if you know what I mean. Everyone at the reunion agreed Jean got the flavor just right. For everyone who could not be there that day, and those no longer with us, we will conclude this season with the song Jean composed in honor of the school and performed for her fellow classmates. We hope it gives you a small taste of the many joys and sorrows, triumphs and tribulations, and most of all, the love that filled that school for well over 100 years. Thank you.
This podcast was recorded and produced by Village Sound at the Village Sound Studios in Halifax, Nova Scotia. For Accessible Media Inc., created and produced by Ryan Delahanty, tech assistance from Sam Robinson, and many thanks to Andy Frank, manager for AMI-audio. Special thank yous to all of our storytellers, Shirley Trites, Joanna Pierce, and staff at the Atlantic Province's Special Education Authority. This podcast is proud to support the APSI Auxiliary Charity and invite you to do the same. Contact them by emailing auxiliary at apsi.ca. That's A-U-X-I-L-I-A-R-Y at A-P-S-E-A dot C-A. Our deepest gratitude goes out to Robert Mercer, whose book Mrs. Beaton's Question inspired this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the wonderful teachers, staff, and house parents at the school. I'm your host, singer-songwriter, professional speaker, Terry Kelly. If you enjoyed our show, please do take the time to subscribe and write us a review. Most of all, we would love to hear from any former students who are invited to join us in sharing their tales from the Halifax School for the Blind. Reach us by emailing halifax at ami.ca. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.